Today we are joined by Dr. Pete Coplis, who is a veterinarian specializing in reptiles and exotics uh, based out of El Paso, Texas. We're really excited to have him on today to talk about a variety of topics in um, turtle and tortoise veterinary work and, and specifically diseases and, and some of the work that Dr. Coplis has done. Uh, real quick, though, a lot of us are, it's been a while since we've recorded, so we're all kind of in different situations. And uh, we've got Wyatt joining us now, uh, new, newest member of the, I mean, he's sort of always been involved with Colonia Cast, but uh, he'll be on for more episodes to come. But I think maybe just all of the hosts can go around real quick and just give uh, just an update on kind of where everyone's at. We're doing some cool stuff right now, and then we'll uh, sort of lead into the, the interview. But Ken, maybe if you want to get us going on your current uh, what's up. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm still working on my um, projects with the uh, Mexican marble toads and seeing if the two different populations are separate species. And we're, we just got the uh, genomic sequences back, so we're looking through that. And Jack, you want to go ahead? Yeah, yeah. I, currently, I'm doing uh, I'm volunteering with some sea turtle uh, research in the Panhandle and working with uh, diamondback terrapins and Gulf Coast box turtles as well. Uh, and I'll be doing that for the next month before getting back to the alligator snapping turtle and uh, Santa Fe and Suwannee River system stuff that I've been doing. A good one. Um, yeah, um, there's not, there's not much going on for me right now. I'm kind of preparing to move down to Gainesville, Florida to start at Santa Fe college this next semester. So hopefully I'll be involved with more research going on in the Suwannee river uh, and in the Santa Fe during that time. Sweet. All right, Jack, you want to get us started with our, uh, our go-to question. Just kick us off. Dr. Copeless, I'm going to hit you with the first uh, question. What first got you interested in uh, turtles and tortoises, and uh, what made you decide to pursue the veterinary route? Okay, so I grew up actually next to a drainage ditch in Houston, and it was uh, now it's it's concrete lined, and there's really nothing left in it. But when I was a kid, it it was uh, you know kind of like a, a drainage canal, but it had wild uh, uh, plants grown in it, some of which were probably invasives, but um, it had a pretty impressive variety of fish and crayfish, a couple species of crayfish, that one of which I've never seen um, since, and turtles, and, you know, I, I grew up running around in that thing and and uh, got fascinated with, with turtles. Um, what led me to veterinary medicine actually was pigeons, racing pigeons. My father raised uh, homing pigeons and we raced them competitively. And I, I noticed that there really weren't any veterinarians that would work on birds um, in the Houston area. And so I decided, well, I'll go to vet school and be an avian vet. And um, when I got into vet school, I started doing some emergency work and realized that um, you know, that was going to be a, a, an attractive um, career as well and paid substantially better than doing zoo and exotic animal work. So what I've done was I actually went into um, emergency medicine and myself and a partner bought the Animal Emergency Center in El Paso in 2000. Um, I bought him out in 2013 and recently sold the whole thing, but I still work. I do um, some zoo work at the El Paso Zoo 
um, as a contract veterinarian. I've done that for a number of years, some years more than others. Um, not so much in the last few years. Um, I do a lot of, um, I, I wouldn't say I do a lot of reptile work anymore other than my own collection. And then I have people that know me and I, you know, endoscopically sex tortoises for breeders, um, you know, to especially stuff that's um, a little higher end on cost and people want to know for sure what sex ratio they have. So they'll ship them out to me. And I've got some, I've got to actually going to be doing some this next week and the week after on some radiated tortoises. Um, and then I, you know, I see some cases, but, um, it, it's, you know, honestly between my own collection and, um, my uh, close friends is mostly what I end up doing now as far as reptile work. Although, you know, I, I took a, a tumor out of a, a ball python a couple, two, three weeks ago, I had a great big colonic tumor that was obstructing and, um, so resected that and. So far, the the animal's doing pretty well. So I see odds and end cases like that. Um, what I one of the frustrating things about reptile medicine, and it's getting better, but still the vast majority of the problems that you see are husbandry related, and you find yourself giving husbandry talks all day. Um, it's become less, but but even with the current technology and the right lighting and uh, knowledge that's out there, there's still a lot of um, a lot of mistakes are made. And, and, you know, as you guys know, as biologists, you, it's real hard to replicate nature. And the deeper you dig into any animal's um, uh, ecology, you realize it, it's, it's very intricate. And, you know, the more you, you, you learn, the more you realize what you don't know. Right. I think that's a great point. And one of the things, like, I, I think we want to sort of backtrack into the, the, the vet school part of things. A lot of our listeners are uh, younger and sort of collegiate level of interest in, right. in reptiles and that yeah. sort of thing. And, and for a lot of young people, the, the reptile exotic veterinarian is a really appealing career. Uh, but it's sort of, uh, from, from folks I've talked to, it seems like it's a pretty challenging pathway. It's the school part of it is pretty rigorous. And uh, I, I'm curious, like, at what point did you know you were committed 100% to becoming an exotic vet? Um, the, the whole, the racing pigeons, that's kind of an interesting to, uh, sort of yeah. segue into it. Well, but also, like, yeah, what were some of the, the obstacles into in, in that, in vet school, and how did you overcome those things? Well, I mean, getting into vet school, it, when I was um, applying, it, it, it was um, probably a little easier than it is now. Um, my grades were, you know, I think I had a 3.35. Um, I happened to have quite a bit of experience working for veterinarians back when it mattered to the interviewers. Um, I think it matters still, but nowadays, if you don't have a, you know, a 3.8 or above, I don't think you even get considered. Um, the, the profession has become um, much more... Uh, of a female, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. It's not a, a negative or a positive, but it, it's uh, females are probably 70 plus percent of the graduates now, maybe more. Um, and I think some of that's because of the perceived pay, um, of, you know, men in general are, you know, very general, uh, but to make a generalization, men tend to 
be a little more uh, geared toward how much money they're going to make. And veterinary medicine, when you look at the, the amount of training that, that you do and the amount of school and your cost, which nowadays is going to run you anywhere from two hundred dollars to $400,000 for the education, um, it's been a, become a tough sell for some folks. Now, with the way things have gone the last few years with COVID, there was an explosion in veterinary medicine. And um, there's a need for veterinarians and they pay, you know, entry level pays quite well. Four or five years ago, I was fairly negative about, you know, to people when they asked me because the cost versus what you were going to make, you know, just from a pragmatic standpoint, I had a hard time um, telling folks, yeah, go for it. But, you know, the flip side is if it's your passion, money's not everything. Um, And, you know, and that's, that's true. Um, but if you go into debt to the tune of $400,000 and you can't service that debt, it's a problem. Um, one thing I have seen about, um, the loans that go into, to, um, these veterinary students is some of the loan, um, some of these loans are, are set up so that you pay based on what you make. So they take a percentage of your salary that's your payment. And as your salary goes up, you pay more. And I know a veterinarian that works for us right now that, that that's the way it's set up. So it's not, you know, it's not as bad as what it sounds to owe $400,000 because that's a nice house, right? Um, yeah, right. But, and, the, and after 20 years, if you haven't paid it off, then they forgive what's left. So that's not a bad deal um, if you can get that loan program and I can't tell you what it is, but it's out there. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's a bit of a digression, but, um, you know, veterinary medicine has certainly grown a lot lately and the pay has gone way up. So it, it is becoming more attractive from an economic standpoint. Exotics um, are challenging because, and it depends on where you're at, in order to like do a, a totally you know, rep, avian reptile or exotic practice, you, you have to be in a, um, a major metropolitan area like, you know, Houston or Phoenix, um, somewhere large. Otherwise, um, most people, like including myself, we combine exotic animal medicine with uh, small animal medicine because small animal medicine is, um, you know, there's a lot more volume. You can, um, it, it's easier in a lot of ways to, to get staff that's trained to handle dogs and cats as an, when you're handling exotics, uh, whether it's, a you know, especially birds, but any exotic, uh, I find that I have to do a, a lot of it myself, um, physically, you know, if I'm drawing, if it's the blood draw or whatever it is, um, I have to do it because the staff isn't technically able to. So it takes a lot of your time. And um, unfortunately, uh, people have the mentality of a disposable pet. Um, you know, they, you know, they will go buy a, uh, an iguana for whatever, you know, 20, 30 bucks or whatever it is. And even, or even if they buy something high end, spend a lot of money, they're reluctant to, 
to do the, you know, go spend what amounts to a whole lot more than that animal's worth on veterinary care. Um, and I don't know if that's because the bond between a reptile and a, and a human is different than a bond between a, um, a dog or a cat and a human or a horse. You know, it's a more of an emotional, you know, it goes both ways. Now, absolutely, I get, you know, I've had tortoises for, you know, some of them for over 20 years and you get, you get attached and they have personalities and they respond to you, but not like a dog does, you know, a dog gets in your lap and, and, uh, wants, you know, the, the mammal, I think we're just, we've selected those animals to, and they've selected us, you know, both ways to behaviorally mesh. Whereas you're still dealing with a wild animal when it comes to reptiles. It's, it's a wild animal that's been tamed, yeah. but it's wild. So there's a different bond. Anyway, the dynamic is much different. It's much harder to make money doing exclusive exotic animal practice. There are some people doing it um, and, uh, you know, doing well at it. Um, but it's, it's a very small market. You know, you limit where you can live. And that matters to some folks. Um, whereas dog or cat practice, you can go nearly anywhere. Um, and uh, even, you know, then there's subspecialties where, you know, if you become a radiologist, you can live anywhere in the world and read x-rays over the internet. So anyway. Right. I hope that answers your question. I mean, I, I think it's really authentic advice and it's good to hear because it's a, a lot of times you have people that just say, I, mean, I, I love the career and it's, you should follow it. But it, it sounds like you're sort of, there's some fair warning there is it's tough and the, 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 the payment for the amount of work you're going to do potentially could be disappointing for some people. So you need to know what your expectations are. Right. And yeah, right. right. And That's, go to a, the other thing is you got to be selective. I tell folks that, that go, um, that live in Texas to go to Texas A&M, not because it's one of the better veterinary schools. It is, but because for a, for the tuition, those kids get out of school for eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. Whereas if they go down to Ross in the Caribbean, which is another very good school, they get great training. They have four hundred thousand dollars of debt. Or if they go to Tufts, I mean uh, yeah, Tufts or Cornell or Stanford or uh, uh, UC Davis, it's off the charts expensive. So you got to plan it out. And you know I would highly recommend if if you're Early on in college, you really want to go to veterinary school. Go to Texas or go or research it. See what you know, Florida or wherever. Become a resident because they don't in Texas, for example, they don't they, they give priority to Texas residents. And so, if they don't have um, if they have 120 or whatever their class is, if they have 120 qualified candidates out of Texas those automatically get put ahead of someone that's out of state. And historically there's never been um, a, a time when they didn't have a full um, amount of qualified candidates, meaning they met the academic requirements. Um, so in, in all practicality, you, you need to become a resident. Um, and I think that takes a couple of years, but become an in-state resident and then you're on an equal playing ground with, um, with the other students that are that are trying to go, and that's a big a big deal when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
Yeah, it definitely is. I For a lot of people, too, it's like this is different from vet school because obviously you don't go in right out of high school, but it's kind of the same logic coming out of undergrad in college. It's like if you another thing that that I was told, at least, is try to get scholarships, that kind of competitive sort of thing, if that, that can help with the costs, at least. Uh, but then that's the, the downside to that is it's you, you've got to put a lot of work into things that could come in the way of getting good experience. So there's sort of a balance there. I, I think that, yeah. Um, so well, we, we, another, another thing, you know, if you are really have the idea that you want to go into academia, that's a, not my area of expertise. It's, I know that it's challenging. I've got, I know people in it and, and you absolutely can carve out a niche. I mean, there's um, a couple veterinarians that have um, carved out a niche. Uh, Stephen Divers is a um, exotic vet at University of Georgia. And, um, you know, he's writ wrote, written the book on, on uh, reptile medicine and, you know, kind of followed in the footsteps of uh, uh, Doug Mater to an extent in that respect. And, and so these are, you know, there are individuals that do it, but it's, it, it's not widespread and, and you really um, have to carve out your own niche. Yeah, well, um, I guess we can sort of go into talking about some of the 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 the, the stuff we were kind of the the diseases and such. Uh, one thing that's that's real interesting, um, and I'm I'm not, I think most of us, I speak for most of us, we're not super well versed in the realm of captivity and captive keeping. Just all of us being in college currently, it's uh, it's kind of tough to keep things just because we don't really have a long term home base and we're moving around so much, um, but something that it, the, the the way the disease spreads in captive populations is still real interesting um and one thing that's currently i i, I think would be considered sort of an emerging infectious disease is the um, testidine internuclear coccidiosis uh, and that's something that you have uh experience working with and it seems like it's sort of this big there's a big open question about this and we know very little about it um but Maybe you could just start out by giving us a rundown of kind of the life cycle of this microbe and 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 what is it actually doing uh, that, yeah. that's causing the issues. Well, okay, so actually, there's been very, like you said, there there's very little known about the life cycle. What I can tell you is that it does reproduce through oocysts. It's a apicomplexa. It's a you know a coccidian. So the the organism. Um, you know, how it enters, nobody has that nailed down either. Although from my personal anecdote, um, I believe that it's almost 99% likely to be fecal oral transmitted. Um, and probably water, um, absolutely can spread it based on watching how it's spread from pen to pen to pen in a captive collections in the only real way was water that um, flowed from one pen into another just because of a uh, you know poor design um, and and so I believe that's probably how it spreads um, I have I have personally sent samples and had um, oocysts sporulated um, and I believe somebody has finally filled Coke's postulates on it don't quote me on that one. Um, but 
the, the, the osis that I had sporulated kind of quit developing. The, the parasitologist had them, said, yeah, they're sporulating, they're, they're, they're developing, and then they just stop. And why, um, you know, I can speculate, and, you know, my suspicion would be that it needs to be in a tortoise uh, once it hits mm-hmm. a certain stage in order to go any further. Um, so what we see with it um, as far as clinical um, is animals that will – the first sign is just real subtle. You'll see, you know, four or five. You could put a, a group of tortoises together that ha- that are that are in a collection, and if one of them's got it, the first thing you'll notice is that everybody's eating real good. And then this guy over here, he's not. You know, he's going over. And then finally, he'll start picking at his food. And you're okay. You think okay, he's all right. And then as it progresses they eat less and less and they finally stop eating. They will also, um, you know, sometimes get a little bit of conjunctivitis, not that consistent. I think the original description was, a, you know, conjunctivitis um, was, was noted. But what we t- tend to see in the species I've seen it in tends to be, um, you know, anorexia, lethargy, um, and then sometimes vomiting, which is really un- uncommon in reptile and in tortoises that you, know very very rarely will a tortoise actually vomit um and it's usually a real bad sign when they do um obstructions can do that but um this disease does it and they'll they'll just puke up and um it once you start you know you see the pattern and once you know it's in a collection you can right away go okay that that tortoise has it um and be be right you know the vast majority of the time when you don't know that's where it's a challenge because um, you know, it, it looks like any sick reptile. They, they do the same thing, they, you know, other than the, the vomiting. If you x-ray them, yeah, they'll have an ileus. And why that is, this uh, organism infects almost every organ in the body. It'll, it'll be in the, in the conjunctiva, in the oral cavity, in the tongue. It'll be, um, they get, but it, 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 the organism is disseminated throughout the body. It'll be in the intestine, it'll be in the pancreas, uh, uh, just about literally everywhere. And so, um, the, they're, you know, they, in a lot of, a lot of animals die from it. Now there are asymptomatic carriers. And, um, one of the, the tests that we use is a quantitative PCR and you can, in the lab that runs this test, it has changed their protocol a little bit, but, when we first started running the test, you could get a, a copy count of how much organism or how much DNA was there and get a rough idea of how bad the situation was. And, and it was fairly correlative. You would see the, the really, really sick ones would have, if you got your sample correctly, and that's a key, you can't just swab feces. The, the organism wants to live on, it lives in, in uh, cells. So you've got to get cells. And the way we, we do that is we'll take a, a, a swab and you can um, you can actually it's better if you swab the mouth and the cloaca. But typically the way I screen these animals is I'll swab the cloaca and paying close attention to rubbing the mucosa and getting those mucosal cells on the swab. And then we send that off for the PCR test. And um, and that's how you screen for it. And that's how you also you know test animals for, you know, that you're highly suspicious of in a collection. We will see animals that have 
super high copy counts and, and it correlates with severe illness. And then you see animals that have very, very low copy counts that are asymptomatic. And uh, probably, uh, you know, obviously a carrier, uh, carrier state. What I've noticed is that over time, after you've knocked out the ones that have never been exposed and you've cured them or they're gone, um, and it does seem to be curable, or they will go to um, to not not being detectable anymore. A cure, you know, I don't know that you can really say it's a cure if you don't do histopathology and PCR on every organ in an animal to prove it, right? But mm-hmm. but clinically, we see them resolve, and they do not are not shedding the organism in their mucosal cells. So. Um, it is treatable with uh, with this uh, drug panazuril. Um, other folks, you know, toltrazuril would probably work at the proper dosage. Um, and I think one of your questions was related to um, the uh, Marquis product, which absolutely yeah, right. is, would work. The the only reason I don't haven't used Marquis is expense. We can get a powdered or compounded product that's significantly cheaper. Um, and when you're treating a large volume of a large number of animals, it matters. For right. one individual animal, no big deal. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, the marquee is absolutely a product that, that could be used. And and with the marquee, that was sort of stood out in the 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 recent uh, the kind of roundtable article about uh, TINC. That that seemed kind of interesting. There was some. I'm not sure I completely understand what the problem was behind it, but the dosage was a little bit off and they, they couldn't quite get it to the point where it is that something that's a common issue with other sort of well, medications? The, with- the, that marquee comes in a, in a, um, a dose syringe that's made for horses. And so it's got a, a certain amount of milligrams per gram. Well, we are not used to measuring in grams and so um, if you want to dose a small tortoise, you got to have a much lower concentration than that. So you either need to dilute that out, which there's a way to do. You can take the whole syringe and dilute it in a X amount of saline and come up with a, a solution of 150 milligrams per mil, for example. Then it's a lot easier to, to dose a real small animal. So I think most of the problems come down to the fact that that product is designed for horses because mm-hmm. they use it to treat protozoal um, myelitis. It's, uh, you know, encephalitis in horses. Um, and, you know, horses are big animals, so they need a lot of volume, a lot of, you know, drug. Um, so it's just not a convenient dose form. But other than that, it's the product fine. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot to cover in this area. And like you said, it's sort of the, the TINC is – just reading through what's available on it, it becomes apparent that there's so much to learn about this the organism. Yeah, very it's little, like... little known. And, and what I can tell you, you know, I probably treated more than anybody, um, is the initial um, recommendation from, you know, if you read a, and if you read a, a veterinary drug formulary right now, the recommendation for um, panazuril to treat coccidians ranges between, um, you know, 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram. And when I first encountered this bug, um, the, I, it wasn't touching them. You know, you'd have sick animals and 
we'd have them uh, feeding tube plays so that we could administer medicine easily um, and feed them and hydrate them. And they're still dying. And so I decided, well, let's bump the dose up. And what we ended, ended up getting to was 100 milligrams per kilogram um, every other day compared to 15 to 20. So it took a five-fold increase to get the dose right. Um, a couple years ago, Elliot Jacobson, who's a good friend of mine, he's a professor emeritus at University of Florida and world-renowned reptile veterinarian. He's coming on the podcast at some point soon, yeah. too. So, so yeah, he, did uh, a, he, he and some colleagues did a, a preliminary uh, kinetic study using panazaril in um, green sea turtles, uh, colonia mitis, um, and... They just they did like six animals and long story short, you know, the, the absorption is highly variable. Um, what they found was that putting the the medication in a, uh, a gel cap that they could ball gun down the, the turtles led to a more uniform, uh, a better absorption. Um, but if you think about it, you know, if you're if you're dosing an animal, that's on an empty stomach versus, um, you know, let's say an herbivore that's got a stomach and a gut full of, you know, fiber, the absorption has the potential to be vastly different. Um, and, and I think that matters. Now, we know that, you know, these animals are anorectic most of the times. So they don't have anything in their stomach, so that may help us. Um, but it, it does change. And so, you know, doing a, a study on healthy animals, for example, that are eating, may not represent how it's absorbed in a sick animal. Um, I have done my own, you know, uh, preliminary, uh, I, I wouldn't say a study, a trial. I sent some samples off on Russian tortoises, and we got therapeutic levels at 100 milligram per kilogram um, based on, uh, on doing pooled samples because Russian tortoises are so small, you couldn't get a, uh, a large enough blood sample from one animal so what we did was administered the drug to several and took took the uh the blood from all those animals pooled it together for testing um which is a legitimate way i mean you get more of an average but you can't tell the 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 wide variations that you would in, if you were able to do individuals so they're just not a uh, the perfect animal for it but they're i had them and they're you know, not a, a super expensive animal in case we had, you know, trouble and killed animals with, with dosage being too high, too high. But fortunately, this drug is very well tolerated and we give it for months. Um, in fact, a, a, a clinically sick tortoise um, will need to be treated at least three to four months with panazaril every other day. Um, and then we go from there. I've had I've had animals on feeding tubes for six and seven months that finally started to eat and, and went on to breed and, and recovered completely. So it's, it is treatable. Um, but you gotta, you know, diagnosis is key. Um, if you don't know what you're looking for and you don't, you know, you won't pick it up until the animals are dead. And that's kind of what, unfortunately what happens in most collections is you'll have animals that start to die. And then that somebody finally decides to send off, testing and histopathology and they'll pick it up a good a good uh, zoo animal pathologist will pick it up on the histopath and then you start screening for it with pcr right right so that's sort of the antimicrobials you're using and what what 
what is sort of the treatment regime in total? I mean, like how frequently are you testing and when do you deem that an animal is, is free or at least that it's to the point where it's, it's latent enough that it's not causing issues. I, I, I think it's totally arbitrary, but um, we usually will start off treating three to four months and then retest and see where we're at, see what the, what the animal is doing clinically. Um, I always give them um, secondary antibiotics because it's affecting so many different organ systems that secondary um, bacterial infections are, are likely. Um, clinically, when, you know, I've done, unfortunately, hundreds of, of uh, you know, necropsies. And in one of my venomous uh, breeder colleague, uh, clients and friends jokes, he's like, well, it's going to come back sepsis. Um, that we treat them for at least three to four months, reassess, um, treat with, with antibiotics. Um, and then uh, I, I usually start them off, depending on how sick they are, we'll start off with a very small volume of um, liquefied uh, commercial tortoise chow, for example. Um, and low volume, just start feeding because um, one of the things I found in practice having, you know, force fed dozens of species is that feeding too much too fast is probably the quickest way to kill an animal other than heat um, too much heat too fast you know i'll see lizards for example would have been lingering in a cold cage for you know days or weeks and you heat them up and then they die um, you, you bumped up their oxygen requirement you bumped up their metabolism and you push them over the edge so you got to go slowly everything that we do is slow in reptiles it's you know you make a change and you go with it for two or three weeks and then you make then you bump it up a little bit you know you increase the amount of food you're giving um water you know we we give water and i i fill them up with water like they would tank up in the wild if they'll hold it down so basically in the beginning i'll i'll give them um a volume whatever that might be that that gets to the point where it's almost refluxing out of the tube and, and so I filled them up, let them uh, absorb that, and it goes into their bladder. Um, and you probably know very well that that's where, you know, Kilonians store their water is in their bladder. So right. um, I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily give them water every day. You know, once, once I feel like I've got them rehydrated, I back off. Um, but I want to get them rehydrated and I want to get their bladders uh, full of water. Um, so that they have their, you know, their body and their natural physiology can take over. Um, and then it's a waiting game. It's, it's time. You know, we, we are treating these animals every day and um, keeping them relatively cool. Um, I like to have a basking spot, but if they want to stay in a, you know, in 75 degree corner, I let them. And um, one of, that's something that over time I've learned in practice, because if you in vet school or if you, you know, talk to a lot of, you know, uh, reptile, you know, veterinarians and they'll say, well, we want to keep them at their preferred optimal temperature zone, you know, 90 degrees for some species, for example. I've gravitated away from that. I will warm some animals up depending on the species and it's different for all animals, but you have to look into um, each species and what their natural behavior is. And tortoises, for example, um, they'll get up in the morning and they'll go and graze. And a lot of species, once it starts to warm up, they're going over and digging in and, 
and retreating from the heat. And so they don't stay 90, 95 degrees all day long. In fact, um, you know, gopher tortoises or, or uh, desert tortoises, I think their, their preferred temperature, body temperature is like 86 degrees. And they're getting hyperthermic after that. So they, that's why they spend so much time down their burrows. Um, Bolson tortoises spend 90% of their life underground. They come out, they forage, breed, and they go back in their burrows. Um, so all these things go into play when you're managing a sick animal because it, one size doesn't fit all. You know, the, right. the temperature isn't, uh, you know, the optimal thing to do with these species is going to be different with these species. We, and so that's one of the hard parts about being an exotic animal veterinarian is that as a veterinarian, the tendency is wanting to have a cookbook. You know, you want to be able to say, okay, here's what we do. Well, this is what we do with irradiated tortoises in captivity, but it might not be the same for a gopher tortoise or for a box turtle. Um, you know, each, each one is as different from the other as a cat is to a dog or more so. And so it, it's a, it's a challenge. Right. Uh, it's almost like being an exotic veterinarian it, It's it's, it's almost unfair to lump everything under one term. It's like you're dealing with thousands right. of species. You've opened the right. door to a whole and, different and realm. Any, any zoo vet will tell you that, you know, you get good at what you do, you know, and if you have a collection of, you know, Joe Flanagan at the Houston Zoo, you know, I remember asking him something about, I forget what it was, and I'm like, you know, have you ever done it? I've never done one. I've never done that, you know, just didn't have that problem in his collection. So he doesn't know the first thing. And he probably wouldn't know the first thing about internuclear coccidia because they haven't had that. Um, right. On the other hand, if you ask him about prairie chickens and you know dealing with uh, pentastomids, tell you a whole lot about that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a, you know, you truly, it, it's a, you're, you're a jack of all trades, master of none as an exotic animal veterinarian. You're trying to apply your veterinary knowledge um, to a species. And, and the things that we can do that are really effective is herd management. You know, when, when somebody brings you a pet animal in, it's a huge challenge because you don't have um, any, you don't, you don't have any herd information about that animal. You don't know where it came from. You don't know what um, contaminated uh, pet shop or breeders facility it was in, that it could have been exposed to X, Y, or Z. Um, so you're, you're starting off at a huge disadvantage, whereas like in a zoo or in a private collection where you've got a history, it, it's, it's, you can be a lot more, um, keyed in on, on what to look for. Um, surely, you know, there are species predilections, you know, bearded dragons, we know have coccidia problems. Okay. Um, they have a adenovirus problem. So when you see something come in, there's a couple things you check for because it's real basic and it's easy to do. Um, somebody brings you in a, you know, I don't know, a, a spider tail horn viper, <laughs> you know, um, nobody knows anything about those. And, and so you're, you're starting off from scratch. And, and unfortunately, the necropsy is your best friend because you have to get the diagnosis. And, you know, from you know, but it can be very frustrating, you know, from the, our experience in Madagascar, you can have hundreds of necropsies and still not get the answer. <laughs> you right. know? And yeah. so, and that's what happened there. They, we never figured out what was causing that stomatitis. Although I would have bet you money that it was a herpes virus from looking mm -hmm. at it. Um, it looked just like what herpes virus looks like. Um, 
but it wasn't. So, yeah, you know, it, it's a it's a wide open field. You could make a career out of studying reptile diseases for sure. And, um, you know, I've got a colleague that actually, you know, the same thing goes for reproduction. Um, a friend of mine, good uh, Sean um, uh, Perry, is a Ph.D. and, and uh, veterinarian that studied um, reptile reproduction. And, you know, there's so little known that it take a lifetime just to get good at knowing what chameleons do. <laughs> you know, or one species of chameleon. And so, yeah, it, it's uh, it's daunting, but it's wide open. So you can kind of pick your path and and uh, learn a lot. You 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 highlighted something interesting talking about uh, Dr. Flanagan's experience uh, that he, he doesn't have to deal with the TINC. So going going back to that, what it seems like there's almost an individual response to this and it depends like the severity of the infection really depends on individuals or species specific. I mean, would you say that's yeah. something in your experience? And I, I don't know again, because I've only dealt with it in uh, like maybe four species, radiated tortoises, Galapagos tortoises, um, Sri Lankan star tortoises, Burmese star tortoises, and it kills every one of them the same. Um, I know of, I, I have, found a weak positive in an Aldabra tortoise. I don't know how real it was. It resolved. Um, and I know I have heard accounts of some uh, Kuara species that have had very high counts that were doing fine with it. So is it possible that, you know, Asian box turtles carry it? Maybe. I mean, it would, I would be super interested in surveying wild um, species, you know, going over and looking at, at various uh, Asian species of box turtle or um, whatever, you, you know, pick a, a, an area. Uh, there were some animals that came in recently, um, some hinchback tortoises um, that came in as, uh, I think they came in as um, uh, Conixis zombensis when they're actually Conixis belliana, which is a, another interesting story because Conixis belliana are not supposed to be imported because of a tick, um, but the you know misidentified. Some of those came down with internuclear coccidia, but where they got it, who knows? I mean, they could have picked that up um, at the you know where they were held by the the importer, um, but it's possible that those animals have it in the wild, um, and, and again in the wild, like you you know it's it's pretty intuitive that the way these diseases um, behave in the wild is going to be potentially very different than in captivity because it's a direct life cycle. Um, you know, the, the oocyst is shed. Um, now, well, I'm most coccidians that we know of are direct life cycles. So and the way I've seen it behave in collections indicates that it's a direct life cycle. So I can't prove that though, that there isn't an intermediate host. Okay. Um, so I'm going based on my my opinion on watching it and how it behaves in a collection. So in any any uh, parasite that has a direct life cycle, it goes through the host and then it comes out however it's shed. And in this case, feces or urine. And um, and then um, it's infective. You know, the, those oocysts develop and they're infective. And so if you're in a closed 
close quarters where there's a lot higher population density than there would be in the wild and the animals can't roam a large you know home range now they're defecating and leaving their fecal matter in their environment and reinfecting themselves and they build up these high um, levels of it um, that's one possibility the other thing is you know any disease and we know this from covid is that the amount of infectious agent that you're exposed to directly correlates with how sick you get um with covid that's that was proven that that very low doses tend to be less severe and it's the same with a lot of viruses we know of is that there's a certain number of amount of virus it takes to to infect you um one viral particle is good chance it's going to get wiped out by our immune system before it can take hold but if you get hit with with millions you're much more likely to be infected well the same thing goes with um with these parasites if you get a high parasite load fast you get a lot sicker faster so mm -hmm. um yeah i think in the wild it may very well be that that this doesn't cause death it's just a you know a, a, it's a parasite but it it's not killing its host which makes sense i mean evolutionarily a disease that kills its host is a failure because it doesn't have a host left right with, yeah. with most diseases you know for most diseases evolve so that they don't they don't have a hundred percent mortality rate because if they do then you know how are they going to transmit there has to be a reservoir host um and has to be a surviving host or it's done so yeah, it, it's uh, the way it behaves. It certainly behaves like you, you think it would in an aberrant host, you know, a lot more virulent. Um, but it also may have to do with just how much they're exposed to. Again, these are all just my opinions. Yeah, and continuing on this on this topic, have you have you heard of or, or considered the idea that the term intranuclear is, is actually a misnomer? I haven't, but I'm not a microbiologist yeah. or a pathologist. Um, okay. You know, I, I can, I would uh, defer to Mike Garner, who is a, um, a top-notch uh, zoo animal pathologist. And, uh, but yeah, it's been a while since I've looked at photomicrographs of mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, the marots or uh, whatever they are, uh, you know, in, um, in the cells. So yeah, maybe it's not in the, in the nucleus. I wouldn't wouldn't be shocked at that but it's yeah, an intracellular organism hmm. from what i understand yes the previous um previous guest we had suggested that um his name is gabriel matea suggested hmm. that the the parasite development occurs in the um in the plasma of the cell yeah hmm. wouldn't shock me uh, i think that's more of an academic although although it may you know it it, it may dictate you know, therapies and whatnot. But I tell you, the, the, this particular class of drugs, Benazeril, um, Toltrazeril, uh, I think there's another one called Diclazeril, would all be in the class of drugs that would work. Um, so at least we've got that. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a tough disease. And unfortunately, most people that get it learn the hard way. They lose a lot of animals before they ever um, figure it out. Right. Do you do you think it's possible? I mean, it, it seems like we know so little about it. Do you think it's possible that a lot of the tortoises that are imported, like you said, they have it coming from the wild, 
and they come to captive collections, but that this isn't one thing. It's potentially a group of microbes, uh, the the Amiria, and that it's infecting different species. It's almost host-specific, and that it's just I, been I, replicating. I, I think that they got the DNA worked out pretty well that, Mm-hmm. that this particular bug is it's it's very specific and it behaves very time. specifically there's there's no doubt that you know there are other things there's viruses that come in periodically that that'll you know kill animals off um in fact i i found um there was a paper published a couple of years ago i was a mentioned at the end you know at the end as an author only because i found one of the cases but it was a um, leopard tortoise that was sent to me that was sick and um it ended up having a new herpes virus that happens to be um found in wild box turtles in missouri um so they found this new herpes virus novel herpes virus but i i had a a a captive leopard tortoise that was in a collection i think it was exposed to a box turtle in that uh, collection as well so basically a new herpes virus and this animal came in with um severe stomatitis and i thought it was going to be herpes virus and then after watching a while i was like man i you know it acts like it's got coccidia and sure enough it had both and it had a the highest copy count i've ever seen um so those two things together were you know absolute uh kryptonite and it, it killed the tortoise um despite being treated you know aggressively um so yeah you can have concomitant infections um you can have multiple you know what we know about parasites in general is they're pretty amazing what they do to the immune system like in humans um or in, actually in, in dogs it's been demonstrated experimentally that uh hookworms for example they do a, a lot of very interesting things to the cell-mediated immunity and um, cytokines, all kinds of stuff that, that they do to evade the host's immune system, okay? They did a study on parvo puppies years ago, and parvo is a viral disease of, of dogs, if you're not familiar with it, and it kills a lot of puppies. Well, dogs that have hookworms and parvovirus are at much higher mortality risk. And it makes sense because now you've got a parasite that has modified this animal's immune system and the animal's immune system's already severely compromised by the, the virus. But you put them two, put both of them together and it's bad news. So, um, yeah, it, it's, a, you know, having multiple um, variables involved where you could have who knows how many other parasites in these animals that are wild collected, for example, um, and viruses. And uh, so, yeah, um, there's no doubt that, that having, you know, other diseases at play are going to affect your outcome. In, in regards to testing, it seems like false negatives, especially like later down the road in terms of treatment, are kind of an issue. Do you think that there what, what kind of advancements in that realm? I think it's sampling. Um, the, if if you, you haven't done enough of them, somebody, you have to rub the mucosa. And what I would tell folks is, if you can, get an oral swab and get a, a cloacal swab too, okay? But the problem is that some people want to send off feces. They want to, or they want to stick a swab up the cloaca and just get, and it comes out brown, so they figure they got a good sample. Unless there's oocysts being shed, which there may or may not be, 
we don't know how often these things are shed. We don't know anything about when it sheds, whether it sheds all the time or what. Um, so you've got to get a good sample. And I think it's sampling error personally when you get a false negative. Okay. That's, that's yeah, my that's... personal, personal clinic, clinical impression. And I, and I have done it before where I just didn't get a good sample and the animal came back negative, but later on tested and it was positive. Now, you know, was that animal incubating, you know, still in the pre-patent period or what? I, I, I don't know, but, um, I, I, it makes sense that if you don't get a good sample, you're not going to get a good result. Right. Right. It seems, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting sort of disease to talk about just because there's so many aspects of it. It's, it's like any question is, is pretty open-ended and, and a lot of your clinical experience is great because it's not like there's much more in the realm of research and, and that right. sort of thing. Um, but in terms of just kind of, uh, we can sort of shift focus in a second, but I'm curious in what is the most interesting part of this disease in terms of research focus for you personally, where you think that, that, that research would be most fit? Uh, um, I think, I mean, what I would do if I had time and, you know, in, in resources to do it would be to, to probably, um, you know, you'd have to have infected animals. You'd have to, um, find a way to, to give a known, number of uh osis or sporulated osis to um proven normal animals and then monitor the progression and see my you know my suspicion is it'll take you know uh, six to six weeks to three months for them to get sick um, but i think just knowing the time from exposure to the time of clinical um, symptoms would be real helpful for one. Um, and then following those animals. But, uh, you know, that's me as a clinician rather than a, you know, I'm not a, a researcher or, you know, I don't do molecular genetics or any of that. I, I do think that having, um, you know, having a test available that's easy to do and fast and rapid would be great. And, you know, with uh, what I've found out recently is because of all the um, sequencing machines that were out for COVID, that there's a ton of these things on the market now you can get for about 10 grand where you could, you know, in theory, set up and get the right, the right probes um, or the right, uh, um, what do you call it? I guess it's a, a probe is what it's called in, in, in molecular genetics. But basically, you could sequence your own, you know, almost in-house and be able to screen a lot faster than having to send it to a lab and for substantial expense. So, like, for example, in a uh, – but the next step would be if there was a way to do a, a rapid, you know, patient-side test where you could screen everything – um, like we do with parvo, you know, if a dog comes in with parvovirus, we stick a cotton swab rectally, well, orally, then rectally. And because sometimes they're vomiting that virus up and we have a result in, you know, 10 minutes, um, having to wait two or three weeks for a result is not so good. Um, it's not, you know, the end of the, you know, it's, it's not, 
you can manage it and you can start treating ahead of time, but it's a little frustrating as a clinician to have to wait that long. So having a more rapid test, but you know, the reality is, is that reptiles, um, you know, the reason why there's parvo tests that are rapid is because there's enough people to pay for them. And unfortunately in reptile medicine, it's such a specific thing that nobody would ever manufacture a, a rapid test. Right, right. Uh, even the, I mean, the COVID was a good example. That took a while, and just the right. amount of money that was put into that, I'm sure, was absurd. Um, oh yeah, and, yeah. Just, but uh, I guess we can sort. I, I think we've covered a lot of that, and it's it's real interesting to get your perspective on it. But you've also got experience working with another. Well, this is this is a virus, uh, the herpes virus, and th- this is a really fascinating uh, situation because you've got this is very host specific. It's almost kind of the opposite of that coccidia. It seems like it floats around uh, where, but it's a virus. You may expect this to be more kind of co-divergent with different hosts, but you've worked with the, with, with herpes virus. I'm curious when you're just kind of, what is your experience with that? And are there any symptoms I, of that specific? I don't have a, actually have a huge amount of experience with it. I've seen it in some you know, Russian tortoises, for example. Um, you know, the classic are the um, European species, the testudos and uh, Russian tortoises, agronemies or whatever they are now. Um, those, those tortoises uh, are the classic um, genus group to have herpes. Okay. So um, they're, they're all, you know, got to be considered, you know, at risk when you're, if, if you approach it from a clinical standpoint, this is a, a group of animals that I'd be worried about herpes virus in. Um, I think, yeah, having a, you know, herpes in general, when it crosses hosts acts n- nastier in the aberrant host than it does in its natural host, which makes some sense, right? Um, you know, herpes, uh, there's, there are herpes viruses, um, you know, uh, herpes B virus is a great example in, um, in monkeys, in rhesus and cinemologous monkeys, um, uh, basically macaques, this particular herpes virus, is, you know, they carry it. But if you get exposed to it, it'll kill you almost as surely as rabies will kill you. Um, it is nasty. And um, I think in a general sense, that seems to be the case with herpes viruses. You know, if it goes from a, you know, say a, a testudo to another species that's not adapted, it's not adapted to, it, it can be really nasty. But I've seen it wipe out whole groups of, of Russian tortoises, you know, in the classic way. Um, they get stressed and exposed to a, a shedder and it can go through them. And they get, you know, these horrible, um, you know, it hits lots of organs, but the, the outward clinical symptoms are those um, severe, um, caseous, cheesy plaques, uh, stomatitis that, that we saw in, the, in, the, in Madagascar, almost identical. You couldn't tell it apart visually. But I haven't had a huge amount of clinical experience treating it. I've found it, um, but that, that's the extent of my experience. I mean, it, it's uh, and really from a uh, standpoint of herd management, my approach would always be to test and, and eliminate. You know, you quarantine, you separate out any animals that are sick and you test the rest and try to, you know, isolate it. 
but it's it's a absolutely a herd health approach. So that kind of raises an interesting thing. It's something you mentioned earlier, the stomatitis we were seeing in the radiotortises. That wasn't a herpes virus, but in herpes virus, you, you see stomatitis. So obviously some right. symptoms across, they're, they're somewhat nonspecific. Oh, yeah. why, why is that? I mean, a lot of diseases with humans, it's very specific, but it seems like with reptiles, there's a lot more cross. Yeah, I mean, the, the, like I said before, one of the, one of the, the few very um, basic truths about uh, reptile medicine is that at the end, when they're dying, they're all septic. You know, they all get bacterial infections that, that are overwhelming their system toward the end. That wasn't necessarily the original problem though you know it, it and so you know yeah treating with antibiotics is probably a good idea in any severely um debilitated reptile because you just get these secondary infections but um you know i i think it there are probably very specific there's a lot of specifics i mean you can these viruses affect certain tissues more than others and you know it's just a, it's just that you know, you get a mishmash of species. You don't know if you're dealing with the exact same virus or are you dealing with a host adapted virus? Um, so how it behaves in one species, how a herpes virus behaves in one species versus another, you really need to know for sure if it's the exact same virus to make a, a fair comparison, right? And then it's probably going to have a, a little different um, behavior between different species. You know, um, viruses in, you know, uh, cats and dogs, okay? Parvovirus, can, it, cats can get canine parvovirus. They don't get sick from it. It affects their gut, but it does not hit their bone marrow like the, the parvovirus does in dogs. So... Exact same virus, but for whatever reason, cats are, are not prone to the severe effects of it. Um, dogs, on the other hand, get hammered by it. So, and the same thing probably goes with all these different species, you know, that it's going to act different. And there's going to be some hosts that you would never know they got exposed. And there's going to be some other species that it wipes them out. And so how, you know, how do you you know what organs were even affected unless you're doing a pathology, right? Unless right. You're looking at yeah. On a microscopic level, and um, you know we just don't have enough data. You know you don't you don't have enough, and you certainly don't have controlled studies where they've done hundreds. Um, like that's what was interesting about Madagascar is you had hundreds of animals, and and like I said, it just never ceases to frustrate me that in the one situation where. You know, I preach to people that the best test I can run for you, if it's available, is pathology. You know, is to do a, you know, I can, I can draw blood all you want on a reptile and do, do tests, but it's not going to come close to telling me what's going on like pathology will, like histopath, on multiple organs of an animal that just recently died. So um, it, it's, it's frustrating uh, that was super frustrating because he, we, here we had the, a situation where we could get all that data from dozens of, of specimens and still not get the answer. <laughs> right, right. It's like, man, 
you know, but, but that's the, that's what you're dealing with in, in exotic animal medicine is that, um, unless you have, you know, even if you have a perfect situation where you can get histopath, you don't always get the answer. Um, but you know, fortunately sometimes you do, and it's the best we got. So yeah, that's how I typically approach it. But, but yeah, you know, I don't know that we can say, um, you know, how these, um, these viruses are affecting different species unless you have a really controlled situation and you can um, follow them at every stage of it and do necropsies. It's just, uh, it's daunting. Right. Viruses change so much and rapidly too. You're sort of dealing in real time. You you don't know what the infection is, but you also don't know what it'll be in 20 years or 50 years. It could be something very different. So it's just, yeah. I'm not a virologist. I know that there are some viruses that mutate a lot faster than others. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think that that's a certainly a question for somebody else that has more background than me. Um, I think, uh, you know, distemper and, you know, in dogs, for example, you know, the, the viruses that we vaccinate for don't change or they don't change uh, antigenically enough that the vaccines have to change, for example. So, you know, the, the vaccine that we've been given for, you know, the same vaccines we gave 20 years ago still protect against parvovirus, um, although there's a new one out that um, it, it still seems to, to be protective, but um, the, the animals that have never been vaccinated uh, by, you know, or exposed to street virus, older dogs, can still get it but I, again without digressing um those viruses paramyxoviruses uh so distemper virus um they don't seem to change like that you know i guess coronaviruses do and obviously influenzas do um, but um you know i guess being the, the other question though is i'm talking about immunity versus you know how do they change you know, in, in what they do to the host is a different question too, right? So you could, you could have a, um, a virus that becomes much more virulent or less virulent, even though, you know, the vaccine still protect against it. Right. So would you say it's, it's good for, for, there are a lot of keepers and people that have turtles, tortoises in captivity that uh, obviously a lot of animals will perish with time. Is It should be something that they're sending those animals in to laboratories to get those things necropsied, and you can run that. I mean, that... Oh, yeah. No, no, look, if something dies on you, the, the problem is that, and this has happened to me, I mean, if you're not watching them, you know, one, I keep them on my animals outside in large pens, and so if something was to die, unfortunately... I might not find it until it's been dead for a week, you know, just because they're in deep brush. And it's, it's what you give up when you, when you house animals in a more natural setting rather than an aquarium, you don't see them constantly. So you've traded um, that ability to watch them closely for giving them more space, which is healthy for the animal being outside, which is healthier um, in, in, many cases if they're adapted to your environment but so if you can't get a fresh sample is my point and and you'd be surprised how many times that is i mean 
unless you have just a purely pet animal where it's in an aquarium and you're watching it minute by minute, you're not going to catch it. And they, the samples degrade really fast. So um, it can be difficult, more difficult than you think. But, but yes, to answer your question, a, a post-mortem is, in, you know, I don't know, 10 times better than any blood test we can run. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give you um, a starting point toward dealing with your other animals. Now, you know, shit does happen, as they say. And, yeah, sometimes animals get obstructed and they die from that, in which case you don't, you know, a postmortem will tell you. And you'll, um, you'll know, that, well, I don't really have to worry about my other animals other than, you know, don't have the same material around for them to eat. You know, I've, I've seen my Aldabra tortoise, pass a stuffed toy before that um, how the hell that got outside ate it and went all the way through so you know yeah that's a hurt health problem if you keep leaving shit laying around um but, but yeah it's uh, uh no doubt um you uh you 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 know in a zoo that's that's one of the first things you learn is you do necropsies on everything and you're all and you're doing a lot of necropsies because you lose stuff. I mean, uh, wild animals, um, they're wild and, and they, you know, they're not, um, you, know, you lose them eventually and always live a long time. Although some stuff lives longer in captivity than it does in the wild. You, you mentioned something earlier that was interesting with vaccines and the, the you don't typically get vaccine resistance, but with antibiotic resistance, is that something that, that you deal with frequently or is that sort of the same not, thing? Not so much in reptiles. We, we do in small animals. Um, we see a lot of um, methicillin-resistant staph, uh, MRSA, and uh, methicillin-resistant staph pseudorinomedius. Um uh, you know, so yeah, we, we see some resistant bugs, but, um, you know, in a hospital setting like this, it makes some sense because we have sick animals hospitalized and they're being medicated with, you know, IV medicines, they're here and they develop resistant bugs. And, but reptiles on the other hand, you know, how many are really um, being medicated, you know, and for how long, um, it, it I don't think the exposure has been anywhere near what the exposure of these bugs are because you have to kind of lump small animal uh, bugs like methicillin resistant staph with human, you know, because we, we share those bugs with, with our pets. I mean, I, I probably have um, colonization on my hands of both of those because I've cultured it enough out of my patients that I'm probably colonized. Um, I don't know that I've ever given it to a reptile, but, um, you know, in, in, it's just that I don't think that antibiotic use has been so ubiquitous in reptiles to a point where we're going to see that kind of resistance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I think it's interesting to think, too, with mammals. I mean, obviously, you've got human there's a lot of crosstalk there and you can get a lot of uh, right. interplay there that, with reptiles like that. Going back to what you were saying about the, the term exotic veterinarian is almost kind of unfair. And uh, it's just in some cases yeah. it's one one off and it's just, yeah, right, right. Right. Yeah. I'm a yeah. radiated tortoise veterinarian. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> 
and a Galapagos tortoise veterinarian. Yeah, and, yeah right. <laughs> and some lanthanotus, you know, throwing lanthanotus in. And, um, right. Yeah, I keep some lanthanotus as well. Um, had my first hatchling uh, last year, but uh, that's a challenging species. Um, so anyway, moving along. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've got one more sort of herpes virus question that was kind of uh, just bugging me a bit. Um, in, ter- in terms of the testing, uh, w- what sort of testing is used for that? And how does that compare to the sort of efficacy of the testing for coccidia? Yeah, a lot, a lot less experience. My understanding, um, you know, from talking to the to Mike Garner is for histopathology or for PCR, you get a sample of the tongue. Um, you know, like on necropsy, I cut the tongue out to send that off. And that, that's a, probably one of the better samples you can get for what it's worth. If I was doing a PCR on a live animal, I would, you know, oral swab and, and send that off for, for PCR. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to know. Uh, especially important for those with turtles and tortoises in captivity i mean that yeah. seems like if, if you've got to send something off that's a good place to to sort of target need to find a reptile veterinarian that'll work with you and most of my samples i send to university of florida um, they've that's where um you know most of the virology work has been done um thanks to elliot jacobson and, and now um you know people that have come in, in his path uh that are still you know doing work um, so yeah, that's, that's where I send my samples to. And, and I think it's probably one of the better places that, that, to, to screen, to use and they're reliable, know what they're doing. Right. Okay. And I, so another thing, I, I think we can sort of transition and, and kind of wind things down to the end, but there are a few more, uh, just more like personal questions in terms of your experience with just your career. I did not um, know that woman. <laughs> no, yeah, not that personal, but uh, yeah. Uh, the first thing I'm curious, so this is more of a, a, a care sort of thing. I, I've had box turtles and, and turtles in captivity where you go to the, see a vet and they prescribe something and, and you do that and it doesn't seem to resolve. I've had experience with this with eye infections in particular. And then uh, you put them outside in a pen and within a few weeks, it's fully resolved. So I'm, I'm curious, yep. are there any situations where you actually recommend not doing anything in terms of yeah. invasive procedures? All the time. All yeah. the time. Um, you know, uh, it, as a veterinarian, that's, you know, especially when you're not like a veterinarian that's uh, obsessed with reptiles, okay? We want to give a drug. You know, that's what we're trained to do. Either do surgery or give a drug, right? And so the tendency, you know, as they say, if you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, you know, it, it's husbandry. The vast majority of these problems come down to natural history, come down to giving them what they need. You know, if you, I could, I'll, I'll go off on a little bit of a soapbox about natural history, but you look at some of the extremes. Spadefoot toads. This is an animal that spends 98% of its life underground in estivating or hibernating. And then two weeks out of its, out of the year, it comes out when it rains, 
breeds, eats some, and then goes back under the ground. You take that animal and you stick it in a terrarium and you try to feed it for eight months out of the year, shit isn't going to go right, okay? The same thing goes for box turtles. It goes for every species we talk talk about and we try to keep. Box turtles don't eat year-round. They don't. They, go, they come out in the spring and when there's a lot of food and they eat, but out here in the desert, these desert box turtles, they're dug in during the heat of the summer. It rains and they come out. But what do you do into that animal's physiology when you take it from that environment and put it in the cage and feed it every day? You're changing everything. You're changing everything. You're changing its, everything about its liver, its fat, all the metabolism changes. You're setting it up for, um, you know, it's, it's metabolically stressed. It's... Um, its whole physiology is stressed. So it's no wonder that you get all these problems, right? If you, if you just mm-hmm. correct, let it go, be wild to the extent that you can, um, they're going to do a lot better. Um, I also, I've noticed the same thing about tortoises, herbivorous. Look, we way overfeed in captivity, way overfeed. And we're feeding things that are, that are nutritionally just flat out wrong in many cases. I mean, you see people feeding giant tortoises, uh, lettuces, you know, when I say lettuce, okay, greens, um, produce. Those things eat high fiber, low protein, low energy diets in the wild. And they grow very slowly. And if you feed them in that, you know, improperly for years, it's no wonder that, you know, at 25 years old, they start to have trouble. Um, you know, it's like with people. If you can eat French fries and hamburgers for 25 or 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. But what happens when you're 60? You die of a heart attack. Think about how long these colonians live. They can live as long as or much longer than we do. So it might be another 30, 40 years before we realize the damage that we've done with with these um, improper husbandry techniques. Right. And so you're advocating for more of a naturalistic type and give them space. Yes. Yes. But it's very difficult because like, you know, you know, the more you dig into it, the more you realize how very nuanced it is. So yeah, what I, what I tend to advocate for, there was a guy named Bert Langerwerf who was a a well-known breeder. And I want to say he was in, uh, Georgia or Alabama, he he was from the Netherlands and he came over and, and his whole approach was to pick animals that were from a very similar environment to where you're living and that are adapted to living outside. And it makes a lot of sense. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, um, you know, sometimes something very, very um, specific like soil type you know, some tortoises, you know, if the soil isn't right, bolson tortoises, if the soil isn't right, they're not going to, their eggs aren't going to hatch, you know, and so their range might be dictated, you know, and how they do ultimately might, might really depend on very specific things that, that you might not realize. But in general, if you can keep your, your turtles or tortoises outside, being outside, you know, natural sun, there is no substitute. There is no substitute for being able to um, come out, warm up in the sun, 
forage and then retreat into a more natural type space um, that's got, you know, a cooler temperature um, instead of being confined to a, you know, a five foot space that, that the temperature is, is completely the same, right? Um, animals are, you know, Doug Mater coined it as reptiles are, are kind of like an enzyme. They're the, like Michaelis Menton's pet, <laughs> you know, Michaelis Menton was the guy that, that discovered um, enzymes behave based on temperatures, a curve, right? So every enzyme has its optimal um, temperature that it functions at. And it, I credit Doug with this observation, and it makes a lot of sense, is that reptiles, they, they are, they're the same way. They've got to get up to a certain temperature where they're functioning great, and then they got to come down. And that's one of the big things is that, you know, if you, if you keep um, any reptile uh, too warm all the time, it's, it's as big a mistake as keeping it too cold all the time. Um, mm -hmm. It, you know, you've got to give them the opportunity to naturally regulate their temperature. And it's real hard to do in a small enclosure. And then humidity is a whole nother issue. You know, if you, if the animal can dig down two or three feet in the dirt, um, it's micro, you know, environment is much, much different than, than you can possibly give in an indoor cage. Just it's, it's impossible to replicate it. Right. That's 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 good advice coming from you. It's good to hear that. And uh, I, I mean, that's like preventative. I think you'll have fewer trips to the vet if you're doing those things. Ninety nine percent of the problems are going to be prevented if you do the right thing. They're they're tough animals. You look at the have you I'm sure you've seen animals that have been through fires and been run over by cars and they're scarred and their shells are deformed and they healed on their own. They didn't have anybody giving them antibiotics. They're out in the wild and they, you know, obviously some of them don't make it, but the point is, is that they are incredibly resilient if you just do some basic things right. It's just knowing yeah. what those basic things are. <laughs> That's not always easy. Right. I think Wyatt uh, wrote an interesting post about something like that with the healing on uh some some cooters i the uh from the uh big surveys the santa fe river yeah yeah there i i've seen uh this one cooter uh during the past two surveys i saw her one year and she had a massive hole in her shell um i'm not sure what the cause of the hole was from uh there's a there's a bit of debate about it um but the it was it's crazy to see how much she'd healed in just over the course of a year um and i've seen cooters i've seen sliders um a here as well that just uh are just crazy resilient when it comes to injuries i've seen yeah. cooters with entire legs taken off by raccoons or uh snapping turtles with hyphosis that would cripple a mammal um, or even uh, scoliosis and all these uh, conditions that would, you know, cripple us or any other mammal. And they just take it like it's nothing. It's insane. I've never seen anything like it anywhere else in the animal kingdom, aside from maybe some niche invertebrates. Yeah, they're, they're impressive animals. Um, and, and that's why, um, you know, they can be incredibly rewarding to treat. And then it can also be incredibly frustrating, um, you know, that they'll linger and linger and linger and linger and then finally lose them 
you know, it, it um, and then also, you know, predicting, you can't always predict, you know, they, what I have noticed though, is when, when they come in, they could be busted up and, and, you know, smashed. If they come in and they're still, you know, they still have good head function and they're, they've got some uh, jaw tone and they're strong still. It, it's incredible how well they'll do. You know, the ones that come in that are much more obtunded, um, you know, the prognosis is poor and that's, you know, much poorer. And that, that seems to hold with almost any animal. If they, if they got some strength, I've had dogs that come in and have a lung hanging out, literally, you know, got torn up and the lung, the, this lung is poking out of the chest and the dog's running around and those do pretty good. You know, you put it back, wash it off and stick it back in the chest and put a chest tube in and treat them with antibiotics and they do great. They come in with just a, a pinhole and one thing is I, I liked uh, the conversation we had about like prevention, just keeping the animals naturally. I've had, I've fixed so many issues with tortoises, fox turtles, simply like, just like, all right, I'm just going to set them up outside and hopefully this resolves yeah. itself. And like every time that's happens. Like, yeah. It, it, here's the, the frustrating thing is that everything happens slow. Everything, yeah. you know, it, it, nothing good. It, it's, it's like a reef aquarium. If you ever kept aquariums, a reef aquarium, nothing good happens fast, but bad shit can happen really fast. Um, and, and it's the same thing with, you know, to an extent with reptiles is that they don't recover real fast. Um, it takes time. And so even when we medicate, you know, people's expectations are that, you know, I give them a shot, doc, and that they're going to be well in, in two weeks. When the reality is it might be six months before that animal really recovers. Um, acclimating wild caught animals. It takes sometimes two to three years. Sometimes they never really acclimate. Um, I've got my buddy who keeps the, the spider tail vipers. Um, those animals, you know, even five years down the road, these are wild caught snakes. Five years down the road, those adult animals are still not really well adjusted they're they're flighty they're scared um whereas the captive bred babies are a completely different story um that's just behavior not you know illness but recovery from illness is the same way i mean it if you're treating them for you know whatever the the damage doesn't heal fast you know they will heal if you give them the right environment and do some basic things right but like what you absorb observed about the the conjunctivitis, you know, there's some potentially vitamin A issues, but uh, a lot of it's going to be infections. I mean, I see uh, groups of box turtles where, you know, somebody will have 20 of them in their backyard in, you know, unnaturally high densities, and they come in and they'll all have, you know, oral abscesses, you know, there'll be four or five with oral abscesses or abscesses under their um, third eyelids. Um, or just right under the eyelid where they'll get these swollen eyes. And if you um, anesthetize them or you can, you can restrain them good enough, you can pull their conjunctiva down and, and a lot of times express out a, um, uh, a chunk of cheese out of their eye where they've been just had this pus caseated in their eye. 
um, just an abscess from, you know, and I think it's multi multiple factors. I think it's, it's certainly goes back to husbandry, but also probably some, some primary either mycoplasma or pasturella infections um, that contribute to it. Um, but, you know, having a, a too high a density um, is going to be a big, a big problem too. So uh, I got one last question. I just to I, wrap it up uh, it, just in terms of like, you've been doing veterinary work for a long time. And I, I'm curious what the most interesting case that you've ever seen uh Maybe turtle wise, and then not turtle wise, just over every. Wow. Yeah, you know, my I wish I'd have kept uh, records, you know, of you know, like a, a a journal, and I haven't, and I just don't, you know, I meant to to try to come up with one, and I can't say that I can can pull one off the top of my head. I mean, I've I've uh, you know taken out bladder stones out of tortoises and, and those are those are kind of cool um i i actually i'll give you one that and this is a very specific thing and it's 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 not bizarre but it's a i've dealt with a, a one breeder that has uh redfoot tortoises she's got i don't know 15 or 20 of them and she's got two or three females that and redfoot tortoises have very large eggs okay they don't lay a lot of eggs but they lay large eggs and so um I've kind of developed my own little technique of extracting um, these eggs from these egg bound females. What will happen most of the time is, is she'll notice that they're straining, they quit eating and they'll, they'll uh, kind of lift their, the, the back end of their plaster on up uh, of their uh, shell up and, and kind of be pushing. So she knows that they're trying to lay eggs and then bring them in on X-ray and there'll be an egg stuck in their pelvic inlet. Okay. Well, it, it's a, it's challenging. How do you, what do you do? You know, that, and so, you know, a lot of vets want to spay the animal and be done with it, which I'm not an advocate of because we, you know, it's taken a hundred years in, in small animal medicine to figure out that spaying and neutering is not an innocuous thing. Okay. Does all kinds of things with our hormonal systems. Um, the incidence of uh, certain cancers goes up, um, orthopedic issues go up. So, I, I don't think spaying is, and, and, you know, again, in a wild animal, then, you know, spaying for, if you're spaying a endangered species, what are you doing, you know? So not that redfoots are, are dangerous, but I'm not a big advocate of, of spaying these animals. So what I developed um, over time after fooling around with them was uh, what I do with them is I'll take a, an otoscope cone. So what I'd look down the ears of a dog or a, a cat with, and I'll look up in there and locate the egg um, under anesthesia most of the time. So I'll sedate them the same way I would for most any other short procedure with a ketamine, um, uh, an alpha-2 um, active drug called dexmedetomidine and maybe some midazolam. Get her anesthetized and relax. And I'll look up in the cloaca and I'll take a, a orthopedic pin, which is uh, like a pin they would put in a bone. Okay. So it's got a sharp point and I just poke a hole stab it through the shell just by tapping just rapidly just quickly tap 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 until i punch a hole in and then i'll insert my finger in or a hemostat and break that egg down and i've done i don't know how many dozens of times got it down to a you know almost a routine um and i'm kind of proud of that because that's not something you can read in a book anywhere nobody's ever published that it's just a, a clinical technique that i've developed 
That's it's sort of improvised. And then they just sort of like excrete the egg, the broken yeah, egg. Yeah, usually I can pull out the fragments of shells then, but if even if I can't, they'll push it out then shortly thereafter because it's, you know, it's small and and uh, a lot of times they'll lay the rest of them after the first one comes out, um, but other times I'll I'll pop all of them that way. Four or five eggs and just keep pulling them out. All right. Well, that's that's sometimes over several day period. Um, I, you know, I've done some other. What else? You know, I, I took a a tumor out of a a bitus parviocula, which is an Ethiopian uh, viper. Um, you know, done some some interesting surgeries like that that are kind of cool. But it's you know, it's surgery, surgery, surgery. You know, it's just applying surgical techniques to a new species. Right. And any sort of difficult procedures, like very things that were. Uh, you know, I, I tell you another one that was kind of, um, it actually turned out to be not so difficult. Well, yeah, we had one, we, we did a open up a Galapagos tortoise at the zoo that, that had a tumor in its, uh, in, in its bowel. And, um, that was challenging because, you know, you're cutting through, um, bone that's, you know, the, the plastron's about that thick. And so um, the surgery itself went pretty well, but the animal, um, one thing I learned there was that I would probably not use gas anesthesia on a Galapagos tortoise if I had to do it again, because they, um, the, the animal just never woke up. Um, we ventilated it for hours. They, the, the staff at the zoo ventilated it for hours. And it didn't recover. And some of that may have been from disease, but, but I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes um, it might be better to, to use an injectable, uh, believe it or not, an injectable anesthesia, which is what I do. And for sexing these tortoises, I don't, you know, I can, I will anesthetize. Sorry, I'm laying in my lounge now. Um, I like it. It's, uh, the, it looks comfortable. I anesthetize a, um, a tortoise for scoping, for example. It's all injectable. They don't breathe. You know, they'll be under for 30 or 45 minutes, but you never see them breathe. And I haven't lost a single one having done hundreds. Um, you don't have to worry about ventilating them. I think what happens with the gas sometimes is that, um, you know, the gas exchange is through the, the lung. And if you're not ventilating them to blow that gas off, it could take them a very prolonged period of time to, to once the, the tissues are saturated with the, anesthetic gas it has to all come out into the bloodstream and then into the lungs and it can take a long time um and so animals you know can sleep for hours afterward and you know or they never recover and so um yeah i kind of feel like some of these reversible protocols where you can give a drug that you can then reverse and it's no longer on board is maybe a, a better way. Um, I feel like in my hands, they do better and they're easier to manage. You don't sit there spending hours ventilating them. Um, I had one other case that I thought was kind of cool that I'll just tell, tell you about that was in a, in a Bolson tortoise that was uh, brought to me from the, the Turner Foundation. Uh, Ted Turner's ranch has a, um, a couple of ranches um, in New Mexico that they are reintroducing Bolson tortoises. And so I've worked with, with the uh, biologists there that, that managed that. And they had a, uh, a tortoise that was lame and he had been limping on his rear leg for weeks or months. And 
long story short, we did a CT on it and his hip joint was um, it, like the, basically the hip, the ball of the, the hip was like gone. You know, it looked like it had been eaten away either by osteomyelitis or a tumor. Um, I thought most, most likely osteomyelitis or maybe an old injury. Um, so I was able to, um, I thought, well, I'd like to stick a needle into that joint and get a, a fluid sample to see if we can culture anything. And sure enough, just by, you know, visualizing where it was and using the CT scan as my guide, I was able to insert a needle caudally um, right into the hip joint and scanned it. I could, after inserting the needle and, and aspirating out, actually got some fluid. Um, I repeated the CT scan and I could see the tip of the needle right where I wanted it. So I was like, wow, that's, uh, that worked out better than I ever would have predicted. <laughs> it's a blind stick. So it was kind of cool. I'm proud of that one too. It's a lot of improvising and, and sort of, it, it, yeah. It absolutely is taking your medical knowledge and applying it to a new species. Um, you know, that's, there, there, with few exceptions, you know, there's, uh, that's what it is. You know, it's basic science that you apply and then you take that and, and apply it to a new species. Um, little bitty radiated tortoise just uh -huh. in my office now where they keep the babies. And, uh, that's awesome. one of this year's well, hatchlings. It sounds like you've got to get going. Uh, I don't know if that's yeah. still the case, but we, we yeah, like to just end with like, if you've got one piece of advice for someone that's looking to make turtles and tortoises part of a career, what would that be? And we can sort of, you know, I think that you're the guy to give that advice better than me, because I think you've done a great job of being, you know, being passionate about what you do. Um, you will find, you know, if you truly have that kind of a passion, you'll, you'll find a way to gravitate toward it. You know, I, I think getting, um, you know, it, it, the hard part is, is getting paid for it. You know, if you, you might find that you have to end up going into academia um, and uh, working in a university in order to truly get compensated um, to, to what you're, what you're worth. Um, it, you know, but heck, the, the, you know, if you, if you are willing to put enough um, thought into it, you know, nonprofits, there's all kinds of angles, you know, more and more there are people um, that are NGOs that are uh, involved in conservation. Um, and you're already connected to one um, that I know of, and that's TSA. Um, but, you know, I think that it's it's a it's a specific enough niche that I don't know that I could give you any um, real good advice except for keep doing what you're doing, because you're you know, you guys that that have uh, got that kind of um, passion for it will find a way and you'll, you'll gravitate and find people that are like-minded and um, you know, and it'll work out if you stay at it. You, if you really want to do it and you really like it that much. So um, go get a degree in herpetology and you can always teach college students. Yeah. All right. I think, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, definitely all these guys, like there's some extent you just got to live it. And if you lo like follow your heart, but you also got to, yeah. and, and be smart about it. Like you said, don't I think get married. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's advice. I, 
Yeah, we can we can have that kind of advice. We'll we'll have that discussion over beers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that sounds good. Well, hopefully, we'll, right, we'll, yeah, we'll see each other soon at some point. And yeah. uh, it's been great. So that's uh, episode thirty-five. Make sure to check us out at the slash coloniacast You can check out the student research fund there. And uh, we're signing off for now. So see ya. All right. Take care.